Good morning. We are beginning uh, now week three of uh, study of Amos, a minor prophet with major relevance. We are, uh, despite being on the third week, just maybe hopefully get into the second chapter today. Um, the background is important for us to keep in mind for those of you who are uh, joining for the first time today or rejoining. Amos is a shepherd from the southern kingdom of Judah. He was given a message from the Lord to go and declare to the northern tribes of Israel a message uh, first and foremost of God's impending wrath and, of course, ultimately of his available forgiveness. So this shepherd from Tekoa, Amos, is taking this message and the way that the, the book of Amos portrays his message from the Lord is the Lord roaring from Zion. This is a legal prosecution. This is a list of accusations to the people of Israel primarily, but as we've looked at over the course of the last two weeks, first and foremost, he begins with providing a a legal case against the iniquities of all of the nations around Judah and Israel. Uh, You should have been provided with a map today. We saw the map last week, and we're we're getting to know a little bit about the, the tribes of the ancient Near East, and by way of review... As we began Amos chapter 1, we first looked at the accusations against the people of Syria. Amos refers to them by the the collective name of their capital, Damascus. And we learned about how Elisha told Hazel uh, that he would become king. Hazel killed Ben-Hadad and would later be a king who would oppress the people of Israel and Judah for, for generations. We then saw a second accusation against the people of the Philistines. They're referred to as those cities in the area of Gaza. And thirdly, we saw last week accusations against the people of Tyre and of Sidon. We learned that those Phoenician people would become relevant even in the gospel narrative as Jesus went and shared with the Syrophoenician woman, cast the demon out of her daughter, and offered the message of salvation, even to that Gentile dog, if you will. And so we'll pick up where we left off in this list of accusations against these pagan nations. We're going to reread uh, first the, uh, the entirety of chapter 1. Then we'll pray and ask the Lord to give us direction and understanding as we look at this next series of legal prosecutions that God brings against these nations by way of the prophet Amos. Let's begin in Amos chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazel, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. And I will break the gate bar of Damascus, and cut off the inhabitants of the valley of Avon. And him who holds the scepter from Beth-Eden, and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Ker, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, 
For three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send fire upon the wall of Gaza and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send fire upon the wall of Tyre and it shall devour her strongholds. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with a sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send fire upon Taman and Devour, shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah and it shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind and their, kings, their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. And the first part of chapter two we'll read as well. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Moab. So I will send fire upon Moab and it shall devour the strongholds of Kerioth. And Moab shall die amid the uproar, amid the shouting and the sound of the trumpet. And I will cut off the ruler from its midst and will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. We'll stop there and perhaps jump a little bit into chapter two in just a moment, but first let's ask the Lord to help us learn from his word and understand his heart this morning. Father God, we come into your presence, grateful for the opportunity to do so. We pray that as we begin our morning together, Lord God, that we would cast aside the longings of our sinful heart, the preoccupations of our sinful minds, Lord God, and that we would cast all these things at, at your feet so that our eyes might be locked on you. Father God, we just pray that your Holy Spirit and your Holy Word would minister to us this morning to make us effective at doing the gospel work for which you have called us. We pray that you would allow us to understand from some difficult passages of Scripture the message that you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we'll be resuming our review of these uh, tribes, and with the help of our map, we'll know that we'll be picking up at verse 11 and looking at the people of Edom today. Edom, just like the tribes we looked at last week, have some historical significance that's important for us to understand, and the, uh, the scripture is such an, an intricate tapestry that we're told what these names mean. As Christians, we tend to skip over names that we don't understand, or we see a long list of words that are difficult to pronounce, and our, our mind just automatically skips over them. It requires a little bit of, of discipline to take on texts like we're taking on together. But God in his grace gives us resources, including maps, for those of us who are visual, helps a lot. And, and also looking at other passages of scripture tie this all together. So, Edom. First, Reestablishing a look at the pattern, you see that at each of these legal prosecutions, we begin with, thus says the Lord. 
right? That's a, a stereotypical passage that people even outside of the church associate with a fire and brimstone message, right? This is God's word. This is not Amos making stuff up here. This is God's message. Thus says the Lord. And then we see this pattern for three transgressions and for four. And again, last week we, we looked at the analogy of the cup of wrath filling to the point where it spills over and it, it, it's poured out. And that's what we see here for three transgressions. But yeah, the fourth, that's it. There is now an outpouring of God's wrath. And that's what we see happening. So verse 11, we see for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with a sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually. He kept his wrath forever. So I will send fire upon Taman and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. First of all, we need to remember who Edom is, right? So to understand Edom, we can go back to uh, Genesis chapter 27. This will be a familiar narrative for for all of us. And uh, I'm just going to read for you from verse 38 of Genesis chapter 27. You should know that the descendants of Esau are known as the Edomites. So whenever you see Edom, think Esau, right? And remember the story of Jacob and Esau? Let's look at it together. This is just a a snippet. The chapters in Genesis that talk about the relationship between Jacob and Esau are numerous, but this one excerpt will help us better understand God's judgment against Esau's descendants. Look at verse 38. Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered him and said, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. We can stop there, because we know how this narrative goes. Generations of fighting back and forth between Jacob and Esau. We know that Jacob, whose name means the deceiver, stole the birthright from Esau. And Esau's got this perpetual chip on his shoulder. And in fact, he asks his father Isaac for a blessing. And the proclamation that Isaac makes is, by your sword, you shall live. You're going to be a a person who's marked by violence. In fact, he even talks a little bit about the land to which Esau would be allotted. And he says, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be. That's really important because the next thing I want to tell you about the Edomites, we find in the minor prophet Obadiah. Again, going back to our our little uh, handy book here, we get a collection of minor prophets ending with Obadiah. And we could read the entire book of Obadiah this morning. It's only one chapter, but we won't. I would like to read some of it to you, however, and connect a few mental pictures with Uh, with what's going on in God's proclamation against the Edomites, okay? So we have Amos just a little bit before Obadiah, and this little paragraph that we get in Amos chapter 1, 11, and 12 tells the Edomites what's coming. And then we get to the book of Obadiah, and we see it unfolding, right? This is what God promised through Amos, now delivered. And we see the Edomites, and we're told back in Genesis that they're going to live by their sword, They're going to be marked by violence. And they're going to live in a place that's away from the fatness of the land. 
And I uh, watched a, a brief clip with my sons last night to help myself um, refresh with mental imagery. But for those of you who have seen Indiana Jones, right, you have the Valley of the Crescent Moon. It's actually uh, in the place where the modern temple of Petra uh, exists. Well, I shouldn't say modern. It's still there in modern times, but it's ancient. And it's in the clefts of the rock. It's in a desert place. It's in a high and secure place that would be very difficult for others to come and invade. And that was the place of the Edomites. And from there, they would go out and attack others and then retreat and find themselves safe. But look at the book of Obadiah, and you'll find out how God delivers his judgment to them. Obadiah chapter 1, the only chapter, verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations, and you shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like eagles, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So you can picture geographically this stronghold of, of the descendants of Esau, cleft in the rocks, they're safe, only the eagles nest up there. There's no way for military to come and attack them. But look at verse 5, the downfall, the pride of the Edomites. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not only steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasure sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border, and those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you, and those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you, and you have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be displayed, dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. So the story of the Edomites goes, they invited their enemies over for dinner. Right? Again, picturing that, that cleft in the rock, they invited their adversaries in, and the Bible says that those who ate their bread are the ones that did them in. So we see that God's word and that narrative is, is complete from the time of Isaac making that proclamation, you're going to live by the sword and you're going to die by the sword. Here it is, all unfolding. So keep in mind that, that story of the Edomites. Let's go back to Amos chapter 1. So we've got the Syrians, we've got the Philistines, we've got those from Tyre and Sidon, we've got the Edomites. Now we're going to talk a little bit about the Ammonites. This is verse 13 of Amos chapter 1. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of the Ammonites, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, that they may engage, may enlarge their border. So I will kindle fire in the wall of Rabbah, and shall destroy her strongholds. And with shouting on the day of battle, and with tempest in the day of the whirlwind. And the Lord and the king shall go into exile, he and his princes together. So both the Ammonites and the Moabites, who are coming up in the section following this, have the same sinful legacy. I mentioned last week that the uh, unfortunate passage that I had to preach in Genesis chapter 19 covered Lot being rescued from Sodom and Gomorrah only to be drunk and to go through that awful narrative of the incestuous relationship with his daughters. 
Each of his daughters becomes pregnant and give birth to a son. The first son is Ben-Ami, who is the father of the Ammonites. And the second son is Moab, the father of the Moabites. Now, going into that whole narrative is, is complex and potentially over my head. But what I will tell you is that the psalmist says in Psalm 51, I was conceived in sin, right? And we look at that throughout scripture. We see humans that, that come into, into, into life through sin. Yet, God still uses them as a part of his narrative, and he still extends to them salvation. So when we look at the Ammonites and the Moabites, we can think, well, they were doomed from the beginning. Look at their incestuous roots. But yet, God still chooses to speak to them, chooses to use them in his timeless narrative that we still read today, and more importantly, as we get to the new covenant, to offer those descendants salvation. Conceived in sin, but no less loved by God. We see in this section on the Ammonites, which we'll look at very briefly, a couple of things. First of all, you should know that the, the ongoing feud with the Ammonites lasted for generations. If you guys would go with me, please, to Judges chapter 11, you'll find that in the period of time, as Israel is coming in and conquering the promised land, they've not yet sinfully asked for a king, they have organized themselves with judges and in tribes, and we have this ongoing feud happening, and we see that the Ammonites and the people of Gilead, or Israel, continue to, to feud and take land from one another. I won't read all of it, but I would like you to look at chapter 11. If you kind of skim read from verse 12 and downward, you see that the king of the Ammonites has a little bit of an exchange with Jephthah, one of the leaders of Gilead. And he accuses the people of Israel of stealing his land. And Jephthah's response is, wait, wait, wait. We didn't come in through your land. We came and we took the land of the, the, the Amorites, Sihon and Og, that were mentioned in Joshua chapter 2. And we came in and we took the land of the Moabites and, and, and these other groups, but we didn't touch your land. And the king of the Ammonites keeps pushing and so God allows Jephthah to be anointed for battle against the Ammonites and to have some victory. But look at verse 29. I want to read this passage together because it's important to understand as we look at the book of Amos that the people of Israel are no less guilty of sins and offenses against God and against even their children than the Ammonites. Look what we see here. We'll start actually at verse 27 of Judges 11. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give me the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of my, the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Manith, twenty cities, as far as Abel, Kerman, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mitzpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Beside her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. 
and you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. I'll stop there. The rest of the passage is there for your, your reading. But this is a, a, a terrible thing that we see happening here. Jephthah, given victory over many cities of the Ammonites, an incredible military victory, offers his own daughter as a sacrifice to the Lord in exchange for this military victory. Now, that type of, of vow requires a study all of its own, but what we do see in verse 13 of Amos chapter 1 is that God holds it against the Ammonites for their treatment of the offspring of his people. And those, those same people... Jephthah here takes the life of his own child and we see that the narrative, the back and forth between Ammon and between Israel never really concludes. We're now a couple of generations later and we see that it's still happening, right? And we see here with the Ammonites that one of the ways that the Ammonites would would retaliate militarily against their adversaries, particularly against the people of Israel, was to, to rip open their pregnant women and to take the lives of their unborn children. This is a, a common means of genocide even today. This happens in parts of the world even today to, to take over and to expand a territory and to put an end to the lineage of another. While it is not my aim to make political statements and modern applications, this one's not hard to spot with regards to the blatant disregard for unborn life. The scientists of our day will say, trust the science. We say, there's a heartbeat at six weeks. And they'll say, that's not a heart rate, that's an electrical signal. <laughs> Isn't it still an electrical signal every time our heart beats? Right? Does, does God not concern himself with the life of the unborn? And that's what we, we see here. We see God's wrath against the people of Ammon for their disregard for life, Yet we also see the very people of Israel, like Jephthah, for example, offering the life of his own child in a way that certainly would not have been pleasing to the Lord. Moving on to now the Moabites, we break into to chapter 2 just a bit, and we see Lot's other son, the product of, of this relationship with his daughter, the descendants of Moab. We'll read it together. It says, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I will send fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the strongholds of Kerioth, and Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its midst, and will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. The Moabites were also a warring people that would go and, and attack those around them and try to expand their borders. This is, by the way, a piece of territory that God promised to his covenant people, but the Moabites continue to lose a little ground, gain a little. If any of your young people have uh, participated in the board game Risk, it's kind of like that part in the board game Risk that lasts for hours, and some of the time it's just like, it's got to end, right? But the Moabites would, would go through this kind of taking away territory at various times. And I want to point out something very interesting. 
and we'll take a little bit of a tangent together to look at part of what God accuses the Moabites of doing. It says, I will not revoke punishment because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. First of all, what's interesting about this accusation against the Moabites is that they ganged up on and beat up on the Edomites. Now, elsewhere in scripture, we see that God judges pagan nations for attacking his chosen nation. But here, we see that God also has an intolerance for inhumane treatment of one group of people to another. Israel's not a part of this equation. He's going after the, the Edomites and the Moabites and their conflict here. And then what we see is that it talks about how, he, how they, they burn to lime the bones of the king of Edom. This is a, an interesting scenario because we, talk, we, we see them doing literally raids into these nations around them, and they become tomb raiders. They go in, and, and they would remove the bones from a sacred burial place to lay claim to it of their own. And there's a couple of biblical paradigms or, um, that, that I would like to understand to get this better, and one of them will take us back to Genesis chapter 23. If we could go there. It's amazing how the Holy Spirit orchestrates what is taught in churches around the world and the timing of, of the, the texts that are selected and the hymns that are selected. And sometimes things happen without even being necessarily coordinated. For example, right now, Pastor John is teaching from the book of Joshua. Some of the themes that we come across in the book of Joshua are, are common and tie us beautifully to the book of Amos in ways that we didn't coordinate, right? It's, it's the Holy Spirit working. And what we see in Genesis chapter 23 is a foretaste of Abraham and his people occupying the promised land. I'll look at, uh, start at verse 10. What we have here is Sarah, having lived uh, to a ripe old age, dying, and and Abraham, having left Ur and now is, is a bit nomadic, needing a place to bury his bride. Look at this from verse 10. Now Ephron was among the Hittites. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field. I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of the people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will, hear me. I give you the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field in Ephron at Machpelah, which is the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field through this whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went into the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave in the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. This is an incredibly relevant detail that scripture includes. See, God promised Abraham and his descendants the promised land, We don't see them entering the promised land until Joshua's day, 
But guess what? Abraham already had a deeded piece of property in that promised land. This is the first time that we see God's people establishing themselves in the, prop- in the, home- the holy land, in the promised land. And how? By way of a deeded place to bury Sarah. Now, I'll mention that for the people of Israel and for the people of, of this region, it's all on your map there, the, the burial place would be a family burial place. It would belong to a family. They would have an outer portion of the tomb where they would bury the bones for a period of time until sufficient decomposition had taken place. And they would take those bones and put it in a bone box and move it to the back of that tomb, making room for the next relative who would die. Think about that for a moment too, because the burial place, if you look through the kings and the chronicles, when it talks about the kings, it would say, and he died, and he rested where his fathers were resting, right? So this is about territory. This is about the, the land that belongs to someone. If we think about our own mortality, perhaps the thought has occurred to you, when I die, where do I want to be buried? And for most of us, that's where we're from originally, right? We might not be San Diegans. We'd get carted back to Kansas or wherever it is that we're from and be buried with our, our ancestors, Right? So all of this is very important from a cultural standpoint. Now, I want to share one other text with you. 2 Kings chapter 13. And notice here the mention of the Moabites. We're going to start at, at verse 20. And we see, so Elisha died. And they buried him. Now, bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of this year. So picture this, okay? So Elisha has just recently died. The Bible doesn't tell us how, how long has, this has lapsed, but it goes directly from this kind of random, Elisha died, we buried him, to the Moabites. Keep in mind the Tomb Raiders, right? So the Moabites do the seasonal raiding. It says it was that time of year again, the Moabites show up, <laughs> right? And there are parts of the world where you have those almost seasonal border wars. So you have this, and now look what happens here. So Elisha died, and they buried him. Now a band of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. What, a, what an amazing and, and obscure passage of Scripture. Elisha's dead, his bones are there, the Moabites come, they're in the middle of all this tomb raiding, and so they, they throw somebody in that has just been killed, and he makes contact with the bones of Elisha, and he's miraculously resurrected. The ESV commentary says, Tombs in ancient Israel were often dug out of soft rock or located in caves, and they were not difficult to access. It is probably important to know at this point that Elisha's powers to resurrect live on because this man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. So God will throw Israel into exile. The Israelites need to maintain contact with the great prophets of the past through obedience to their teachings in exile. In order, and this will be followed by an unexpected resurrection. So foreshadowing of new covenant. Now, with what we just learned about tombs and tomb raiding and the miraculous power of Elisha's bones, it would serve us well to go to John chapter 19. This is an amazing detail. The Gospels each give this 
detail in, in different ways and in different levels of, of depth. But in John chapter 19, we have the, the resurrection, we have the crucifixion, we have the resurrection. And as we get through and we see him hung on the cross and we see Christ's um, side pierced and blood and water flow, the gospel writer tells us that his bones weren't broken, right? We know this. This was to fulfill prophecy. And then we get to verse 38 of John 19. Look at this. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloe, about 75 pounds in weight. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he had been crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Think about this for just a minute. Throughout scripture, the people who died were, were buried in the place where their fathers rested. But Jesus, his father, in heaven. He's laid in a new tomb. It's not been laid claim to by anyone. Furthermore, scripture tells us and told us in advance that Christ would have no offspring. This is not a family tomb, right? This is a tomb that Jesus' body was laid and he didn't need it for very long. <laughs> Amen? His his body wasn't there. His body was resurrected. What we see is that through faith in Christ, the very absence of his bones in that tomb are what bring resurrection life to those who are new covenant believers. The significance of being, that being a, a new tomb, we can't miss that. For generations, the place of, of burial would, would be revered and sought out. Go look for Jesus' bones. He is risen. He's not here. That's the message of the gospel. For all of these, these people in this territory, in this disputed land, a land that's still disputed today, go to Jesus' tomb. It's empty. Resurrection power. Praise God for that. So he's laid in a new tomb. So that's a, a few thoughts on tomb raiding. Let's go back to the book of Amos. Isn't it much more joyful to look at, at the, the resurrection and the empty tomb than the message of wrath and destruction? But guess what? To appreciate one, you have to have a full understanding of the other. It's all there together as part of the message, the gospel, the bad news, and the good news of the risen Savior, of the empty tomb, of Scripture fulfilled. Scripture told us his bones wouldn't be broken. He would be buried with the rich, he would be buried in a, in a new tomb and he wasn't going to need it for very long. All that was told to us in advance. Chapter 2 of Amos. Verse 4. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. But their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah and devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Let's think about this just for a minute. 
at the risk of, of distracting analogies, let's, let's process for just a minute. Amos is from where? From Judah, from the, the southern portion of Israel, right? And he sent as a messenger to the northern portion of Israel. So everything that's been said so far have been God's word to the northern people of Israel, but about and within earshot, right, of those other nations. But now this messenger who's going to the southern kingdom of Israel, or to the northern kingdom of Israel, talks about the sins of the southern people. So if you were to put yourself in the position of the people of, of Israel for just a moment, everything that you've heard, right, you've heard with the context of we're all good, not talking to us, right? And if we want to be, you know, think of ourselves uh, errantly as we often do nationally, right? We're now talking about North Korea and we're now talking about China and we're talking about the other nations and nothing's come up about us, right? <laughs> but that's all about to change. Amos shifts and he shifts away from the Philistines and, and the people of Edom and Ammon and he now starts talking about Judah. The people of Israel are like, super. Those people in Judah they might be our relatives, but they're still our adversaries, right? The Israelites had gone and raided and taken land away from the people of Judah. So, so far, the people of northern Israel think they're off the hook. These two verses right here are the only verses in the entirety of the book of Amos that Judah is mentioned. From here on out, we get like six chapters of God's proclamation against the people of Israel. We won't get into all of that today, but I will just tell you by way of virtue, by volume, if you will, we see the judgment against all the nations on these maps, and we get two, maybe three verses. But then we get to the rest of the book of Amos, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, all concerned with the sins and the iniquity of God's covenant people. Shouldn't that tell us something, right? The reason the minor prophets are minor and the major prophets are major is because of the volume of content that God chose to use them to speak and to write. So if that's true, then the major message is for the people who are in major trouble here, which is Israel. That said, let's take a, a brief detour to go to Genesis chapter 34. Sorry, Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34, and before we read this passage, I would like you all to, in your own mind, raise your hand, I see it in your mind, don't actually raise your hand, but mentally raise your hand if you did last week's homework. Last week's homework was reading of chapter 18 of the book of Ezekiel. For those who did their homework, what we would have read is that the soul of he who sins dies. We read that the son's sins don't condemn the father and that the father's sins don't condemn the son, but everybody dies for their own iniquities. We also saw clearly there that God does not delight in the soul that dies. That is not God's desire. God's desire is repentance. But that said, we've got this passage in chapter 34 of Ezekiel that is key to helping us understand what we're going to read through the rest of the book of Amos. Exodus 34, verse 8. We'll start there. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. And he said, if I have, sorry, let's back up one more verse. Let's start at verse six. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, 
but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if I now have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our, our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance." Verse 10, and he said, Behold, I am creating, making a new covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as had never been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. And he continues to, to give these conditions of the covenant. You're going to take all these lands from all these people with ites in the last name, right? The Hittites, the, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And I'm going to do miraculous things in you and through you for what purpose? For the glory of his name, right? And all the people among you shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. The purpose of God's special covenant relationship is to highlight his own glory. When his people forget that, trouble comes. And that's true for us too. If God's blessings are poured out on us and our relationship as part of the remnant has as its sole focus to declare God's glory, when we forget that, we're in dangerous territory. So if we were to compare, just briefly, and then we'll, we'll move on here, but if we compare what we read in Ezekiel 18 with what we see in Exodus chapter 34, I will tell you this. The patterns of sin undoubtedly carry consequences from one generation to the next. For those who have been born in a, in a broken home or in a home where there was substance abuse, you know that those things still mark your life. Are you guilty of those sins? By no means. But do those affect your family dynamic? Absolutely. Do the national sins, are those the ones that God will call us account, uh, to account for individually when we stand before the throne of judgment? No. But do those national decisions definitely affect and carry from one generation? Absolutely. We see that in the book of Amos. Just by means of recap, right? We see Esau, Jacob and Esau. And in the time of Amos, the Edomites are called out. We see the Ammonites and the Moabites, the descendants of, of Lot and his daughters. Are they going to be judged for, are, are they in the time of Amos being called out for those legacy sins that have been passed on from one generation to another? No, they're being called out for the sins and iniquity present in their lives, in them individually at that time. We'll see that throughout scripture. There are definitely patterns of sin that carry from one generation to another, but standing before the Lord as a holy judge, it's one-on-one. -on -one. We fend for ourselves, which is precisely why we need a savior. We fend for ourselves. Jesus, he alone is just and the justifier. Let's look real briefly at the accusations against the people of Israel. We're going to have lots of chapters of this, so I'm not going to go into it in great detail, but I would like to call out for you verse 9 and verse 10 of Amos chapter 2. And I call this out specifically because in all the other cases, those pagan nations have general revelation only. But now, based on what we just saw in Exodus chapter 34, this group of people is different. God has spoken to them. God has given them the law. God has promised to do marvelous things on their behalf. And here he calls it to mind through the prophet Amos. 
Verse 9, yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before him, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was strong as oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. So as God begins to address his people Israel, he's going to remind them time and time again how he has acted on their behalf. So they're doubly guilty. They have a greater responsibility because he has spoken to them through his prophets. He has led them by the hand of people like Moses and Joshua into the promised land. And because of that, they're doubly guilty. That said, I want to have us conclude with the gospel clearly in view because I am not trying to qualify our church to do a Bible trivia tournament against local churches here. I'm, it's not like Jeopardy, right? I'll take mid, near Middle Eastern tribes that end in it for 500, right? Like, this is not the point. It is not Bible trivia. It is like, what is it that God wants to tell us about his character? What is it that God wants to tell us about the message of the gospel through Amos? And as I shared with you, Alistair Begg is one of the sources that I've just been enjoying so much as I study the book of Amos. And one of the things that Alistair Begg says is, it's pretty clear that the Apostle Paul had read the words of the prophet Amos. We see this in a couple of different ways. First, let's go to Romans chapter 3. And we'll look at a couple of different verses from the third chapter of Romans. Verse 9 of Romans 3. Paul writes, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands God, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. So, so here we see the the inclusive statement, none is righteous. None have done what honors God. Because of that, they're all under sin. God's covenant people, the pagan nations, same boat. Same predicament. They lack sufficient righteousness to have a relationship restored with the holy God. They're under his judgment. The cup of wrath will inevitably overflow. But read on, there's good news with the bad news, right? Verse 19 of chapter 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and that the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophet bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom Christ put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, remember that, for three sins and for four, right? Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's the message for these pagan, unbelieving nations, for the covenant people of Israel, under God's wrath, except that a righteous substitute who would leave an empty tomb would provide an alternative to that. I want to read to you a segment of uh, this commentary from Crossway. 
that does a far better job of concluding this message than I would do on my own and explaining to us why this, this heavy message is so incredibly important. Listen, the sinful nature of mankind is a universal problem. And these first two chapters of Amos reveal that no nation or person is without sin. God's condemnation of sin is also universal, and the world will be held accountable to him. As a just God, the Lord will by no means allow the guilty to go unpunished. The theme of Amos 1 and 2 is judgment for sin against all nations, which speak loudly to the contemporary world. God will one day bring mankind to account for its rebellion against him and the evil it has done to one another. God has chosen to judge the world through a man, Jesus Christ, and has proved this to all mankind by raising him from the dead. The King of kings and Lord of lords will bring justice to bear with equity and accuracy, leaving none to escape. Thankfully, this judge is full of mercy. The very one who judges the earth bled and died in the place of the guilty. His substitution secured the acquittal of his people and procured their deliverance from the wrath to come. Because Christ has received their punishment, eternal life has been granted to all who repent and believe. Therefore, the judge of humanity is also its savior. Didn't we hear that last week in the sermon? Judgment and salvation go hand in hand. The judge of humanity is also his savior. The very last verse I'll share with you, Acts chapter 17. This is again, Brother Paul, perhaps a, a scholar of the book of Amos, as he's delivering his speech to a bunch of pagans on Mars Hill. And he's explaining to them that the gospel is also for them, not just for the Jewish people that he came from. And he says this, Acts 17, verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That empty tomb, that new tomb, that's our guarantee that our righteousness is found in him alone. So may we end joyfully understanding that, that this wrath that would otherwise be ours has been solved for, has been absolved for through the propitiation, that sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the clear understanding of your character, of your nature, the fact that it doesn't change. God, there, there is no God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. There's only you, our, our holy God, our just judge. Your requirement for, for holiness, your requirement for righteousness has been unchanged. The means that that righteousness has been afforded, however, have changed through your perfect plan from eternity past to send your son Jesus. We thank you, Lord God, that, that the ultimate tomb raiding took place. God, you, you left that tomb empty for all to see, for those witnesses that, that saw you in the, the days after your, your death and resurrection prior to your ascent. And Lord God, for the, the, the throngs of witnesses that have gone before us that now stand around your throne worshiping for eternity. God, we thank you that, that our faith will someday meet, be made sight and that in the, in the interim, Lord God, we have the confidence that our sins are forgiven, that our wrath has been, the wrath that was due to us has been satisfied through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. We thank you and we praise you. We just ask that everything that we sing, that everything that we think, that everything that we um, meditate on today would be glorifying to you and would be done uh, for the good of your people and the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.